Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Elisheva Liss, LMFT, a writer, speaker, and digital educator who works with individuals and couples to help improve their quality of life and relationships. The most common issues she treats are depression, anxiety, sexual, and relationship problems. Her approach is called collaborative, which means she looks at her work as a partnership with each client. She doesn't have an authoritative or specific agenda. Her goal is simply to help her clients achieve their goals. Without further ado, Elisha Valis. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. It's an honor to have you. Um, there is a topic that is very important and dear to us, and I think uh, it would be a great place to start. Premarital education in the, in Jewish communities. Um, there's obviously different Jewish communities, more religious, less religious, Hasidic, Haredi. Um, but many people don't learn about relationships and intimacy until after they get engaged or sometimes even after they get married. So what can we do about this? And how can we improve in this area as parents, educators, community members? It's, it's such a vital issue. It's such an important question. And it's one that's so sensitive and so personal. Just today, I send out a weekly email and it's going through Shira Shira and the Song of Songs and trying to sort of extrapolate practical relationship wisdom from the verses of Shira Shira and the commentaries on the verses. And I got, usually I get nice emails back, but every so often I get someone who's upset. And someone write, wrote to me angrily today saying, um, I'm really, I'm really troubled by your attitudes towards the Hasidic community. And um, I had mentioned that, I guess I have to say what I wrote. <laughs> I had mentioned on, on the Pesach Hashmi'ini at Kalef um, that um, part, of, part of what people crave in terms of emotional intimacy is to be seen as an individual, right? We, we don't want to be just like another pretty face. You want to feel like seen for who you are, you know, internally, as well as, you know, like that physical attraction. And so when people get married in communities where they don't have the opportunity to build so much of a personal relationship before the wedding, sometimes those I love you's and compliments come out a little bit hollow at the beginning of the relationship. And this is something that we've seen a lot in a lot of couples that we work with, and then trying to sort of build up that trust and that sense of exclusivity and uniqueness of connection after there was this sort of artificially imposed connection. Um, so this, but I didn't write the word Hasidim anywhere in the in the email. I just talked about you know when people feel like their compliments or their affections feel generic rather than exclusive. So this person was clearly sort of superimposing an assumption, um, but but it it speaks to how how strongly people feel about the way about the norms of their own communities. Um, so I, I I I bristle when people say the Hasidic community, the Syrian community, the modern Orthodox community, because I think that to call, you know, we're so many different communities and each one is not a monolith within itself in terms of how we experience things. Um, I think there are people within each community who are very proud of and protective of the norms within the community, very sort of conservative, traditional to what they have done and what has worked for them or what they believe has worked well for them and the people that they know. Um, but then for every person that, I don't know, that we'll never know, I don't think we'll ever really know statistics because it's such a hard thing to get honest reads on, but there are people suffering when, within, you know, all communities in all different ways and, and you know, therapists, we, you know, admittedly, we see the darker side um, and we see the people who are not okay and who are suffering from the, uh, you know, sort of the cracks and, and, and in the systems. Um, so yes, there are people, people who, whenever I 
uh, speak up about the importance of more premarital education and not just premarital, but like appropriate childhood and teen education about relationships, about love, about romance, about sex, um, about body, about development. Um, there will be people who will push back and say, you know, this is just not the norm in certain communities. And they'll even say, not only is it not the norm, but it shouldn't be the norm, you know, that it's not just a, a you know, a reality, but it's a shita. It's supposed to be that way. And, uh, you know, I, I have to walk this delicate line where on the one hand, I don't want to fly in the face of people what people hold dear individually. And especially if there are, you know, scholars and, uh, you know, authorities who know better than I do. And yet, you know, I feel like, uh, like, God has put me in a position where I see people's pain and you're supposed to speak out against, you know, injustice and things that are painful, you know, but when there are things that are not okay for people. And so we see a tremendous amount of suffering that could, I believe, you know, in my opinion, be, be prevented. Some suffering can't be prevented, but a lot of suffering is preventable by better um, premarital and, you know, developmental education in the realm of understanding bodies, understanding puberty, understanding um, thoughts, fantasy, um, arousal, you know, all the different parts of psychosexual development that, you know, people end up in certain communities having to play catch up once they're already engaged in some cases. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of trauma, trauma that happens because of um, uh, it, abuse, um, ex inappropriate exposure, and then even within marriage itself, you know, when you have, you know, two young people who aren't amply educated and prepared about what healthy sexuality and intimacy look like, um, you can have really tragic mistakes that could be so easily avoided by better you know, by, by better preparation and education. Um, so the question of what can we do about this, it's a very serious, uh, you know, it's a very serious issue. It's very delicate. People have very strong feelings about it. Um, um, my approach is to take a sort of gentle approach. I don't like the sledgehammer approach where you write smear articles and, you know, talk badly about individual people. I, I, I don't like the, you know, kind of like breaking down, you know, other than abusers, you know, if there's someone who's a danger, you know, an active danger to a community, I think it's important to speak up. But, you know, kind of like, trash talking specific um, communities or or um, educators or rabbis, I, that's not, to me, I don't think that's helpful. I think that just creates more divisiveness. Um, I think education, gentle, respectful education goes a long way. Um, it's funny, like um, a bunch of years ago, I, I put together this course, Sacred Not Secret, a Religious Families Guide to Healthy and Holy Sex Education. Karen and I had to talk about it a few years ago. Yeah, you take the course. Yeah. And, and so um, years ago, when I started speaking about it in certain communities, there was some pushback and I wasn't, it wasn't looking to, you know, make anyone uncomfortable, be controversial. I was looking to really try to help the next generation not suffer the way so many of the clients that we see are suffering. And, um, and, and it's, it's very gratifying to see that some of the very people who gave us a hard time about these um, efforts that we were making, not only have embraced this movement of, you know, more education, but some of them themselves have created their own sort of like classes and talks and articles where they've kind of come around and recognize like, hey, it's not antithetical to holiness or religion to educate people about, um, you know, marriage, intimacy, sexuality, their bodies, development, on the contrary, like this is kind of baked into the reality. There are mitzvot and there are halachot that are connected to the fact that this is a really important and potentially sacred and beautiful part of life experience and relationships. Yeah, I think also there are communities that the more, I would say, um, ultra-Orthodox communities, they kind of have this view of sexuality as like, you know, maybe somewhat, somewhat like original sin, where it's, it's, it's some, it's like a necessary evil. So I think maybe try, hopefully podcasts like this, having these conversations will allow people to realize that 
that's not actually the case, which leads me to my next question, which is, um, in what ways do you find that our Jewish traditions and customs um, are healthy or unhealthy uh, in regards to intimate relationships? And wh when are they not helpful? So, you know, when I was younger, I, I was so idealistic and I wanted to find all the anecdotal evidence to show how, you know, halakha and Torah living are sort of like the recipe for fulfillment and mental, mental health and relational health and marital health. And I don't think that that's untrue, but I also think that like healthy is healthy, unhealthy is unhealthy. And um, that's not always, you know, it doesn't always line up symmetrically with halakha. So you can have people who distort halakha or get extreme or OCD or, you know, overscrupulous about halakha to the point where um, it becomes a weapon, you know, and the Gemara says that the Torah is, you know, it could be, you know, it could be an elixir of life or that, you know, like the, it, 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 there's acknowledgement in the Torah that Torah can be misused and misappropriated. Um, and so just because people are committed to some version of halakha, doesn't necessarily guarantee that they're going to have, you know, good mental health or marital health and vice versa. I'm not convinced that everybody who's not observant is unhappy. I, I think that's a simplistic, silly, um, you know, yeah, <laughs> thing. Yeah. I, I think every culture has people that are healthy and happy and every pe culture has people that are moral and wonderful. And, you know, I might subscribe and do subscribe and believe to a specific theological system, but I, I think it's, you know, I, I do, th there was, there were, uh, there were thinkers, ma masters and Johnson, I believe it was Masters and Johnson, who um, who actually had prescribed uh, a form of sex therapy that was very similar to the rhythm of the Nida laws, you know, like taking time off from from not just sex, but actual, you know, but the physical relationship altogether, you know, to kind of give your body breaks and focus on the verbal part of the relationship, which which uh, when I learned that in grad school, I thought that was really neat. Um, but, but again, you know, we, it's, it's, it's really nice. Like on the key of seminars, when they show, look, this is in the Torah and this is in the science and this is, and, you know, and things line up so pretty. Um, but then there's also a lot of pathology within very religious communities. So, you know, I, I think we owe it to ourselves to have authenticity, intellectual honesty, integrity, humility about religion, about mental health, about relational health. You know, we don't know everything. We don't know everything about science. We don't know everything about Torah and we don't know everything about psychology, but, I think like, you know, kind of using a moral compass that honors like the truth in all those things and a little bit of common sense is is important. I think that when people are using Torah and Halakha as, um, as, as a guide and also allowing their own moral in intuition and communication and collaboration and consultation with people they trust and respect, I think it can be a really powerful grounding, centering resource. Mm -hmm. um, An important point. Yeah. I noticed that a lot of people think that if they follow certain traditions, laws, customs, they think this will be the end all be magic. All. Yeah. <laughs> if I observe Tarada Mishpacha and I keep all the laws of Niza and I'm in a rocky marriage, it's going to miraculously save my marriage if I keep, you know, the laws of Niza or if I do so that's also like the gumball machine version of Judaism. You know, I'll do that for God and he'll do this back for me and all is good. And there's this tremendous sense of betrayal when you have, you know, young men and women or even sometimes older people who feel like they've been playing by all the rules and then some and God still smacked them over the head with something that they didn't want. And they're like, one second, we we had a thing like we, we were supposed, you know, you're supposed to do the thing that, you know, I paid for, you know, I, I didn't get the life I ordered. Or vice versa. Sometimes I have people who will, they'll be struggling in some area of their health, their marital health, their sexual health. And they'll be like, I know what it is. It's because I fooled around with my boyfriend in high school. I'm being punished. Mm -hmm. And it's like, 
I don't think that's how this works. <laughs> you know, like I, we don't have profits. We don't have like any kind of like causation, causality, whatever, you know, to tell us like what, what, you know, that's not the way I, my understanding is that's that it's not a healthy way to relate to like God or morality. Um, there's never been any kind of real promise of an individualized, you know, way to track, you know, this behavior causes that consequence in the, you know, mystic spiritual realm. You know, we believe that there, I mean, I believe that there's some sort of justice system, but not something that we could perceive or you know track in a, in a meaningful way in this world so I, I think in that sense like it becomes even dangerous to view halakha as this like therapeutic intervention which doesn't mean that it's not sometimes therapeutic to impose halakha when you have a couple that's taking things upon themselves in a in a balanced stable mutually respectful way and they're inspired and they're connected and they're educated and they're excited about it that's a that can be a wonderful way of uh, you know a couple growing and bonding and feeling more elevated um in terms of like how they connect with each other and inviting god into their union but it doesn't always play out that way and there are plenty of couples that i think are beautiful healthy happy couples who are are not practicing, you know, uh, halakha, you know, either par partial or. Yeah. 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 So I want to get into more of the Shalom Bites. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I, what I notice quite often in particularly all Jewish communities is that I sense that the onus of the Shalom Bait, the peace in the home falls a lot on the woman you know, um, in order for the relationship to work and the communication to be great and the intimacy to be, you know, up to par, the the woman's the one who's taking the Shalom Bay classes, learning and growing and elevating and doing all of that stuff, right? Um, mm -hmm. You have these clubs for women, like the, what was that book called? You had like a live with Rachel Tuckman. Oh, the Surrendered Wife, the Empowered yeah. Wife, the Laura Doyle stuff. Oh my gosh, exactly. we got clobbered for that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but I actually agreed with you guys. Yeah. You know, oh, I stand by those opinions, but the Laura Doyle minions were coming out of the woodwork. They were so mad at us. You know, you're doing something right when they come after you. That's that's the thing. <laughs> exactly. Okay, they were burning the Rambam's books too. So. <laughs> so I I just find that maybe with women, Jewish women, they have they they have been educated about relationships and communication and the emotional connection and getting in touch with yourself and your emotions from an early age. But the men, on the other hand, they, I don't think it's as much. Yeah. So what do you say about that? Okay. So you said a lot of things and they were all really important. <laughs> I'm just going to sideline Laura Doyle because it's a conversation. Um, yeah. There's a cultural component, you know, look at the individual level, I think that we see couples where the woman is shouldering the burden of trying to keep the peace, but we also see couples where you have a very histrionic or explosive woman and you have the husband who's trying to like walk on eggshells and keep the peace, you know, at the individual level, you can see, you know, sometimes one, sometimes the other. Um, but I think that you're correct in that in a lot of communities, and I don't think this is specific to the Jewish community. I think that yeah. there's a, a broad global socio-cultural um, assumption, and we'll, we, you know, we don't yet know how much of this is just like the way that the world has always been versus like something like you know more biological to women versus you know gender differences, which are not politically correct to talk about anymore. But um, <laughs> I, I still do believe in gender differences. Yeah. Um, 
Um, but um, so so I, I think what we what we see a lot. I'm going to talk about what I see anecdotally in my in my practice because I'll I'll keep it you know limited to what I see. Um, what, in the realm of the sexual, I think that there is what we see a lot are hypersexual man and ostensibly hyposexual woman. So you have a guy who you know regardless of how explicitly he was educated um, about his sexuality. I think that most men, most boys, teenage boys and young men, they don't really have the luxury to ignore their developing sexuality. I think their bodies and their brains won't let them. Um, and I also think that because of that, in again, in religious communities and certainly in the world at large, it's, it's a little bit more um, acceptable and less shameful for guys to kind of banter locker room style, um, the dirty jokes, the, you know, kind of throwing around crass language is almost sort of like a macho thing. And, you know, even for very sort of sweet, gentle boys, like they're exposed to that, you know, you, you can't really raise a sheltered boy nowadays, you know, it, it happens, but it's very, very rare. So you have guys who are either educated because they were educated or they were educated by, um, you know, peers, pornography, God forbid, predators, you know, they're, they're exposed. Um, and there are very few guys under, under 40 who have not seen pornography, I, I think. Um, and, and that's across all communities. Um, unfortunately, I, I don't think that's a happy development. Um, and um, so you have these guys who are very, very aware of their sexual selves. Um, if they're religious and they've been trying not to be sexually active, um, then they, there's often a lot of shame, a lot of, you know, kind of splitting off. It's like, well, that's who I am in yeshiva and that's who I am when nobody's looking or whatever. But, um, you know, a lot of inner tension. Um, but there's there's a lot of sexuality in these guys. And so, you know, the ones who are trying to be like religious about it by the time they get married are sort of like all pent up and raring to go and it's like all this like coiled up sexual like anticipation and and a lot of times expectation and certain certain times entitlement um on the flip side you have young women and now i am going to say specifically in religious communities although there is a certain parallel process that goes on even in secular communities where young where girls and young women are sort of raised to be more sexy than sexual so like, meaning you have these like girls, um, that's not my my formulation. I got that from Peggy Orenstein's book titled Girls and Sex. Um, and I thought it was oh, an excellent. Yeah, yeah. And, and she's a very progressive thinker. It's interesting, but she's like, you know, talking about how like even middle school girls, they're so focused on being sexually appealing and sexually interesting that they're not focused on like their own interests or pleasure or like experience. They're more like, it's very external. It's very like how they're presented. But, um, you know, in religious communities, I would say like the very religious communities, there is a, a sexual repression of female development that has been, I would say more successful. And I put successful in air quotes because I, I don't think it's any form of success, but um, you can raise, it is still possible to raise a sheltered girl or young woman. Um, and so you have, you know, girls who will they'll hit puberty. And um, so instead of like, you know, developing crushes or fantasizing or exploring, you know, their, their new bodies in, in a way that is sort of like understanding what's going on and embracing these thoughts and feelings that are supposed to attend adolescent development. Um, they'll they'll repress it because when those thoughts or feelings come up for them, they they have the ability to repress it. Whereas a teenage boy, I don't think really a healthy testosterone teenage boy could repress it. You know, you know, uh, for a long term. Um, and and some girls can't either. By the way, there are some plenty of girls who like end up being sexually active either solo or with partners anyway. Um, but the, for there are many who are able to repress, and so then they'll join the choir and they'll join join the chesed committee and they'll like rechannel that passionate energy in other places. Um, kind of arrest their own sexual development. And then when they get engaged, 
Um, they're like these these good girls with these good reputations who have no concept of their own body or you know hormonal selves or sexual feelings. And you put these two young people together at a wedding, you know, at, after the wedding, and it's like whoa, different different planets. <laughs> um, yeah. And and both of them are like in shock and so disappointed and so like you know the the amount of trauma that happens you know wedding night and beyond for a lot of young couples because of this lack of education that happened not just during the engagement and not just during the couple of years before that but really over the arc of their lifetime is so heartbreaking um and um and and a lot of therapists are are sort of left to kind of pick up the pieces i forgot what the question was but <laughs> it was just basically a comment. oh about the burden on the women right okay yes. so yes so i think that we have like hypersexual guys and again i'm talking in stereotypes are there exceptions yeah lots of exceptions but this is a right. phenomenon that we're seeing literally in the hundreds um hypersexual guy hyposexual girl or young man and young woman in terms of like emotional intelligence emotional self-awareness social skills um, you know, young women, girls seem to be light years ahead of boys in most communities. It's just, you know, they mature faster. It's considered more socially acceptable for girls to cry, to talk about their feelings, to be vulnerable, to embrace deeper friendships. You know, guys are still bullied when they, you know, kind of like get more emotionally self-expressive. There's definitely a very strong push to change that. But I, I think that's sort of bifurcated around, you know, sociopolitical, you know, yeah. boundaries. Um, and, and so, and yeah, and I think there is a phenomenon in certain communities where if you, if it'd be interesting to do like kind of a, a meta-analysis, like analysis of like the 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 flyers for Shalom Bayek classes, how many are marketed to women versus men at what age they start talking, you know, in the seminaries and in 12th grades, you know, talking to girls um, about, you know, the concept of Shalom Bayek. They're not talking about sex, but they're talking about, you know, how to be a good wife, how to be an Asian Chayil, how to kind of be Mavater, you know, kind of like twist yourself into a pretzel so you can have a happy marriage. And um, sometimes the guys get that messaging too, although not in as much surround sound. And, um, you know, I don't know if I should call you Rabbi Ben, what, what do you go by? <laughs> Just Ben. Ben, okay. <laughs> you can chime in here if you feel differently because I've never been a guy. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, but but I, I think that, you know, probably, you're probably right. A lot of that kind of education is marketed more to the, you know, girls and young women than it is to the guys. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. So then how does that affect a couple when they're married when when the woman feels like the all the responsibility kind of lies on her for like the maintenance of the relationship and the guy has been hypersexual his whole life and the woman is more hyposexual as you said so how does that affect the marriage you know? So you can imagine that at, at the beginning, there's sort of a, sh a shock, you know, and so sometimes what you'll have is a woman who's like rushing to keep up with her new husband's sex drive and kind of like squelching her own thoughts, feelings, needs, discomfort, hesitations, because it's like she just, you know, she doesn't want to lose her Tadekis license. You know, she like, I just need to like, you know, get my Aisha Kyle trophy, you know, um, and, and they burn out fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know. And so either there's trauma and they get depressed or they become, you know, it, get, it gets somaticized. Sometimes you have like vaginismus, dyspareunia, like all kinds of like real sexual dysfunction, physical pain, um, emotional distress, panic attacks, um, you know, really, really tough stuff that we see like a lot of. And a lot of a lot of college teachers will just send the girls to physical therapy thinking like that's a muscular issue. It's like sometimes it is, but usually that's not what's going on. Usually the muscles are telling you something. If your body doesn't want to open, it's because it's scared. Why is it scared? There's pain. Why is there pain? Because the body hasn't been honored properly, you know, and um, and, and, and that, again, goes back to like, you know, appropriate dialogue, appropriate, you know, training, you know, teaching what arousal looks like for a man versus a woman. Um, 
So uh, yeah, so that that would be the sexual version of it. I think in the emotional realm, and and this is this is a stereotype that like in in broader you know popular society is 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 becoming controversial to say. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm comfortable to say it with the caveat that like not all men, not all women, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, many of the women that I work with, let's put it that way, will will benefit from but from more warm up in the emotional intimate realm. So that if you're investing in the emotional relationship by really making time to talk, to spend you know quality time together, that's not about foreplay and outer course, but really just about becoming really good friends. Um, that in itself is a form of foreplay for women. Um, not that it's not for men, but I think that for like a lot of women will say. Um, I, it's hard for me to get sexually interested um, if I'm not feeling emotionally connected. And a lot of guys will counter, well, it's hard for me to feel emotionally connected if I'm feeling sexually deprived. Yeah. Um, so my biased answer, and it's it's biased, but I but I don't think it's only because I'm a woman. My biased answer is that um, some something's got to give, right? It's like a you know sort of cat chasing his tail conundrum of like, okay, so she he needs this to get that, she needs this to get that. Who 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 goes first? I think that we establish the emotional intimacy first. Um, and I, I think that's both a, um, you know, sort of a biblical uh, imperative, but I also think it's a psychological imperative. And for, for the simple reason that when a woman forces herself or if God forbid feels forced by, you know, her husband or her education to um, put herself out sexually when her body and her psyche are not okay with that, that generates trauma. And trauma is the opposite of pleasure. And then what you have are two people who are super miserable in their physical relationship. Um, and, and, and they end up in our offices and we have to like kind of undo the damage. When you tell a guy you need to not be sexually aggressive with your wife and, um, you know, sort of court her, wine her, dine her, you know, make her feel like you, she's more to you than just a pretty face and, you know, kind of be, gets to know her as a friend. He might be a little bit sexually frustrated or annoyed, but he's not going to be traumatized. Um, he's, you're teaching him to be a gentleman. Um, and, and, and so that, that's why my bias is to go with like asking him to put her emotional needs first. Um, mm -hmm. just cause I think the damage doing it, the, not, not cause it's fair. It might not be fair to him, but the damage the other way is, is more severe to both of them and to the union. Do you ever get pushback for that when you, so I don't get pushback so much from clients because when I'm working with clients, um, usually they both have skin in the game, right? Um, they both want to have a happier marriage. They both want to have a healthier relationship. They both want to be having more pleasure and more positive sexual experiences. So I'm not telling them what to do. I'm telling them what I know to often be the case. And so I'm explaining this to you in the course of like a very short, you know, podcast, but usually I spend a good session kind of assessing and getting to know them and giving them space to like express their feelings, validating their feelings, making them understand that it's not them. They're not broken. They're not crazy. They're not bad. They're not selfish. Um, this is a phenomenon you know this is something that's widespread um by the time we've kind of processed their story and my response to their story we've built a sort of trust between us where i can say listen this is what i know to work i don't guarantee that it works but i know that the other way really doesn't work um and and i i kind of like explain the logic and because they've always already had this experience they'll be like yeah we know that's what happens because that's what happened to us that's why we're here so uh, at the client level you know thank god i i don't you know the clients are usually very motivated that's why they're there they want this um, sometimes when people read about my work or hear me speak about it, they'll be like, well, that's not fair to men. And, you, you know, I don't really worry so much about the PR piece of it. If I'm helping people, then that's what ma matters to me. And, you know, um, you know, thank God my public 
personality is what it is. It's not, you know, it's it's sort of an outgrowth of what I do privately. So, you know, and, and I don't claim to be able to help everyone, you know, and there's any therapist or coach or anyone who tells you that they have a hundred percent success rate run away that there, there's no such thing. <laughs> it's yeah. narcissistic, you know, um, so, but, but I think as a matter of like practice, as a matter of mental health and marital health and just empirically and logically, I think what I'm saying makes sense. Like you're, you're not, you recognize that this makes sense. It's not easy. I'm not pretending that it's easy. Um, and I'll tell men, you know, what I'm asking you to do here might be excruciatingly difficult, but you could see why it's a good investment. And most reasonable men will be like, yeah, no, that makes sense. It's going to be really hard, but <laughs> I get it. Yeah. So I think there's like, there is, I guess for some men, they would say there's a catch 22 in the sense where you know, we're we were going to ask you later, but I guess we'll ask it now about yeah. um, Esther Perel. She has this idea that like love um, is the biggest turnoff to lust. Kind yeah. Of, you know, where, where, where a, you, when you see your spouse in a certain light and you, you have this friendship, you just mentioned that you have to build the, the, the emotional connection and all that. It actually creates um, like a barrier, a, a barrier in terms of the lust. Um, so then, so then, the men could feel like that is contributing to the lack of desire and arousal and so on. So yeah. how would you deal with um, that kind of question? Are you talking about a lack of arousal and desire in men or in, in women? No, I'm saying for, let's say for the women who are- For the women, yeah. Yeah, because because you were mentioning that that women first need that connection. So yeah. if, if they're getting that connection, but now they're even they're not attracted or whatever it is because they're less attracted or they're less in the mood. So how do we, you know, how does someone overcome that? Obstacle? Yeah, it's like a catch twenty two. Okay. You know? So that's not what's really going on in the demographic that I'm talking about. So it, th that's the difference between listening to the Esther Perel TED Talk and reading her books. <laughs> <laughs> if you read the book, I wish I, you may have read the book. I read um, Mating in Captivity. Mating in Captivity is wonderful. Um, you know, it. I, I think that. First of all, I, I don't think lust is a particular like goal for a long-term committed monogamous relationship. I think that lust is a really good engine rev up for like the beginning of a relationship. Um, but I think attraction and lust are two very different things. So mm -hmm. lust, infatuation, limerence, you know, sex appeal, all of that, it's a nice icing on the cake of the initial excitement of the of the sexual union. Um, you know, if a couple that is, is that has love and stability and safety and connection also feel lustful for each other in the throes of passion, that's like, again, like a nice, you know, condiment. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think that Esther is coming from a much more um, secular model of dating and relating. And so, yeah, you know, when you have um, a woman who comes and we have girls like this and guys like this, you know, who will say like, what's wrong with me? I'm only attracted to people who are bad for me, right? I only want those mean motorcycle guys. I only want those crazy women who I never know whether they're coming or going and they're screaming at me and they're abusive, right? So um, there's something about that, like sexual tension, the um, un... Uh, the inaccessibility, the danger, the the adventure, like the that that kind of like unsafety that yeah, danger is really the word that is very exciting in the short term and it, it generates sexual tension. Um, then you have the opposite problem where, um, but but of course it's not a healthy relationship. You know, it's not it's not a right. good foundation. Um, so you'll have like a fun you know night together, and then you'll have a big fight, and then you'll break up, and then you know those are those chronic relationships that are like always tumultuous. 
Um, and sometimes those people get married, you know, like there's sometimes people who come in and they're like, we actually have a great sex life, but we just can't stop fighting and screaming at each other. So that's where there's like a lot of lust and passion, but let's say like, and there might even be like a foundation of love, but there's an instability and maybe that instability is connected, you know, like in movies, there's often like a scene where there's two people screaming at each other. And then one of them will go, are you as turned on as I am right now? And then they're like, yeah. And then they just start smooching their think people really do that in real life <laughs> I don't know maybe they do I haven't really met anyone that acknowledged that that's a thing um you know I, I think the notion of anger as passion and of fighting as a turn-on is like a little over glamorized <laughs> um right. but you know so she's talking about you know kind of balancing that you need a certain amount of chase a certain amount of mystery a certain amount of like kind of like not feeling too comfortable so comfortable in the relationship that you start taking each other for granted and I think that's valid but for myself and for my family and for everybody I love, if you have to err on the side of that like safety, stability, the relationship that feels like, you know, warm, cozy PJs, um, and maybe you have to work a little harder to get your orgasm <laughs> um, versus the relationship where there's like a lot of excitement because like a lot of the time your spouse is kind of like keeping you at arm's length or sometimes cheating on you or making you feel like not good enough. And then you have to work really hard to get them turned on. Like, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> so uh, obviously it's not, there are a lot of couples. I, I think that I have a, a, a blog post that's titled assessing your relationship. And I think that in, you know, secular pop society, popular society, where it's like, oh, there's a lot of focus, at least let's say in media culture, you know, the, you know, like TV culture, movie culture, there's a lot of focus on like that initial like excitement, sex appeal, emotional, physical attraction. Um, and not as much about like those like foundational, um, more rational, spiritual, like values-based, long-term longevity type of features in a relationship, people will like fall in love and fall in lust and get really excited about someone. And then like, you know, two years into their relationship or their marriage be like, wait, you don't want kids? I thought we wanted kids. And they yeah. literally never had that conversation. Like that's literally something that happens. Like um, in our communities, that would never happen because people um, are obsessional about like figuring out that we have the same life plans, the same values, you know, probably to the opposite extreme. So I think that, you know, the lust world is hyper-focused on, you know, emotional and physical attraction um, without like kind of that more logical and, and spiritual alignment. And I think in our community, the occupational hazard is the other way that people are so hyper-fixated on making sure that you are the exact same religious wealth and shang and you want to do the exact same life plans and have the exact same number of kids. You know, people are so busy, like it's almost like a job interview. Um, and and it's like, if you get, if you have the right shidduch resume, you know, the right report card and you know, everything lines up logically, then it's like, okay, I guess we should get married. And then, and then they'll be realized sometimes, sometimes, but often enough that I write about it, that like, hold on a second, we never really scanned for that, like excitement, that feeling of like emotional attraction, sexual excitement. And, um, you know, and I, I think ideally in a healthy relationship, there is a balance of both, you know, there's the, you know, both the the passion and the excitement and the, the energy of like, I'm excited to see this person. And I want to kind of keep getting to know them and peeling back layers and having adventures with them. And I want to keep each other on our toes with our humor and our wit and our but also I want that safety of knowing that they're going to be there for me and I'm going to be there for them and if that's a little boring so be it you know sometimes that that kind of boring is a good thing what right. what are the you know some of the common challenges that you see couples face like in and out of the bedroom um okay so the it's not it's become like 
passe to talk about communication. Like all the pop popular books are like, it's not about communication. <laughs> it's much cooler to talk about attachment. Um, yeah. But but I, I think a lot of it has to do with communication, honestly. <laughs> um, I think a lot of it has to do, a lot of the way we communicate is connected to our attachment styles and to the underlying feelings that what we're communicating, you know, express. But I think the way we communicate what we're feeling and touch, you know, base with our inner selves and express that it comes back to how we share things. Um, there's a therapist named Dan Weil. Um, he's also a writer and he has this like really wonderful way of conceptualizing different ways that couples deal with conflict, right? Because conflict is where we're going to bump into problems when we're in agreement and everything is smooth. That's, that's not where the issues come up. It's usually around conflict um, or, or around ignoring each other, but ignoring each other eventually comes around to conflict again because somebody's feeling ignored and then they create conflict. Um, so he says that um, there are three basic ways that couples can engage with conflict. Um, one of them is what he calls adversarial. So if a person's being contentious, belligerent, you know, picking a fight, you know, like that's straight up mean, you know, I call that hot fighting, you know, where you can't ignore it. The second way is what he calls avoiding. So it's like, you know, you're just kind of like, like avoiding each other. You're not talking about it. You're talking about other things, but you're like not, you're tiptoeing or dancing around the issue. And like, there's this kind of like icy thing in the air that nobody's dealing with, you know, like kind of elephants in the room. Um, and the third way, which is the way that, you know, he wants and we want people to learn how to engage with problems is collaborative, right? So I'm not the problem. You're not the problem. The problem is the problem. Let's figure it out together. We're on the same team. Um, and you can sense in a, in a therapy room or in a conversation when you're in collaborative mode, because you're feeling like, okay, I hear what you're saying. Okay, that's a good point. But here's my problem. And like, you know, like you, you have that feeling of just feeling understood and being respectful. And like, we're, we're in this together, even if the, the emotions are running high, but like, you feel like you're sort of on the same side of the problem with each other, like trying to figure this out, as opposed to feeling like enemies. Um, the, the hot fighting is more traumatic and definitely scarier for children to see. Um, but the benefit that it has is that you're dealing with issues. You're, you're, you're not ignoring it. The avoidance is um, less traumatic and less scary for children. Although kids who grow up with chronic avoidance, chronically avoidant parents will eventually pick up on that tension between them. Um, and the downside is also, besides for that, is that you're also not dealing with issues. So you can sort of afford to be in avoidant mode for a lot longer than um, the hot fighting, which most couples are not hot fighting all the time. Um, but ideally, like we want to really teach couples how to have um, better, you know, communication, problem solving, you know, empathetic um, expression, active listening, you know, really trying to understand each other when when there's something that comes up, because very often it's less about who gets their way and more about how we got to that conclusion. You know, mo sometimes I'm going to get my way, sometimes he's going to get his way. But like, if I feel understood and then we kind of came to that, you know, discussion at, together, it's like, okay, so you really feel strongly about this and I really understand why. So even though it's not my preference, let's do it your way, you know, like for this time, you know, and, 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 you know, then that concession comes from a place of love and empathy and understanding rather than from feeling bulldozed. Um, that's a really common thing that we see outside of the bedroom. Um, in the bedroom, I think what I see in my sessions, and again, I always get criticized, and this is a fair criticism, um, that where I talk about hyposexual woman and hypersexual guy, I do occasionally get couples, not occasionally, there's always like one or two couples in my practice where it's the other way around, where the woman is more having more desire and, you know, and, and the guy is more standoffish. Um, I don't speak about it as much, number one, because I don't see it as much. And number two, I don't feel like I have so much to share that's helpful um, like on a pattern level maybe because I don't see it as much but I, I try to help those couples on a more individual basis and figure out what's going on with them individually as humans rather than something that I can really generalize in a helpful way to my readership so I'm very honest about that I think that my male colleagues would probably have a lot more to say on that because 
um, you know, I, again, this is an old fashioned belief, but I, I like, I like for people to stay in their lane. I've only ever been a woman, so, <laughs> you know, so I don't, I don't want to speak for men. Um, I, I obviously, when you're working with a couple the therapist is either, well, not necessarily, obviously, but I believe that when you're working with therapist, the therapist is either going to be a man or a woman. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you're going to have to deal with, you know, you're going to have to deal with like a certain amount of blindness. So, you know, that's, um, but but the, the majority of what I see, and that's still sort of the cultural stereotype, is the guy who wants more than the woman wants. Um, and, and that's not inherently problematic, meaning every couple is going to have areas of discrepancy in their relationship, right? So there might be a couple where, you know, he likes it very clean and she's more chilled and likes things a mess and she doesn't really mind if the house is messy. Um, she might want to, like, be careful with money and save and work really hard and he might, like, be more of a spender and more easygoing and like, oh, we don't have to work so hard, let's just play and, and enjoy, right? Um, religiosity, they might be on different pages about parenting styles, how much time should we spend with in-laws or parents and how much say should our, you know, respect families have in our lives how often should we get together with them travel you know there's so many different like values and lifestyle issues that come up where we can have differences um and and even the happiest couples you're, if you say to them like oh is, are you happy because you're just like on the same page about everything if they're honest and they're healthy they're going to be like no there's plenty of things that we disagree about but like you know john and julie gottman who are one of the you know gadole olam and um you know couples therapy oh. <laughs> um they have they've they've noticed in their love lab like in their real research they're one of the few um you know kind of professionals that that have collected real data um and uh they say that most most couples issues that they disagree about 60 70 percent of them are not going to get resolved in their lifetime like he's always going to be neater or she's always going to be more careful with money or whatever you know like they're never going to agree on some of those issues but the difference between a very happy couple and a couple that's in strife or suffering from it is a how they navigate those differences right how they negotiate them with each other and b what they call i think it's, they call it positive sentiment override so if the majority of your interactions are loving supportive playful empathetic pensive you know kind of like exploring life and doing life in a way that feels connective that feels like we're on the same page about the things that matter most when we're not we can have a sense of humor about it we can be easygoing about it we can just be like okay that's your thing that's my thing we don't let it get inflamed too much of the time then you know the majority of the time we're enjoying our relationship and those other times okay so nothing's perfect right the same way like a healthy person isn't someone who never has any aches and pains or infections it's a person who the majority of the time feels good and can function and then sometimes you get strep and that's okay right yeah. Well, you, you mentioned the off camera, something that maybe I wanted you to touch on regarding the in bedroom problems that you find, uh, specifically yeah. as it relates to men who have certain expectations. And if their wives aren't meeting those expectations, they kind of get coerced into doing certain things because the man will feel, like, kind of guilt them about, you know, they don't want to waste seed or something like that, that 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 may exist in more um, stringent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of reasons why women might feel pressured to perform sexually in ways that they don't feel comfortable with, whether we're talking about quality or quantity of sex acts. Um, and one of them, one of them might just be like, I don't want my husband to be mad at me. I don't want him to be, you know, pleasuring himself, watching porn, cheating on me, you know, all this like different kind of what they call gatekeeping. Um, there's there's another more sort of refined level of gatekeeping, which is this piece, um, which some men have internalized this message, some women have internalized this message, um, which is that it's her job to save him from sin. Um, so that when he has a sexual urge or desire or fantasy, that she needs to show up and support him in that way and be available to him because otherwise, like who knows what he's gonna do with that urge. Um, I feel like that, that 
paradigm, that premise is so disrespectful of men. It's making an assumption that the guy is like an animal and can't control himself. Like, you know, he's had these urges since he's probably like 10, 11 years old. <laughs> you know, like, what did he do for those 10 years before? <laughs> you know, what is he going to do for the four to eight weeks after she has a baby if, if they're halafic, right? Um, you know, uh, that that's, you know, it's, it, and obviously it's very traumatic for women. So whether she's feeling coerced by her own guilt, because sometimes very often the case is the guy is like, I'm not pressuring my wife at all. I'm just inviting or offering or asking if she's available for sex or if she'd want to try this thing in bed. Um, and she feels like, oh, but I was told you're never supposed to say no to your husband. So it's not coming from him. It's some other message that she got. Um, and either it came external, somebody told her you're not supposed to say no to your husband, or she just decided in her own head, her own insecurity, her own sense of like, I just have to be there for him no matter what. Um, and that will often tamp out any like arousal, desire, fantasy that she may have had for herself because she's always acting in response to her, his, her, her perceived, her perception of his need. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that's often a pattern that we see play out. And that happens very often when I have a couple where the, the wife will say, like, I don't know what happened. Like, at the beginning, I, I did have desire. I did have pleasure. It was so much fun. But, like, I don't know, like, maybe since my baby or maybe since at a certain point, like, things haven't been enjoyable for me anymore. Sometimes there's hormonal reasons for that. Sometimes there's, you know, um, circumstantial reasons for that. Maybe her job got more stressful. Maybe his job got more stressful and he's not, you know, available to, you know, be there for her emotionally as much anymore. And she's not feeling as turned on because of that. Um, but often it's because she's burnt out, you know, she showed up for him a lot. And the first few times it was like, oh, she was having fun too. But like, when you feel like you don't really have the right to say no, then your yes doesn't become so meaningful, you becomes kind of meaningless. Um, and when you feel like you have to do something, even if it's a pleasurable thing, you know, if you like pizza, right? I love pizza, right? If, if you gave me a slice of pizza, I would say, oh, thank you so much. I enjoy the pizza. If you say now you have to eat pizza every day, three slices for dinner every night for the next month, I'd be like, I probably want to like vomit from pizza after <laughs> like, ew, no, I don't want any more pizza. Right. So you can OD on a good thing. Um, and I think that's what does happen to a lot of women. And so, for some women, it doesn't even get off the ground because, it, you know, again, this is a, a very real problem for a lot of religious couples there. If they didn't touch each other at all or very limited before the wedding and then they're going, they're expecting themselves to go from or their husbands are expecting them or the, the system is expecting them, whatever to go from zero to 100 overnight. Um, they don't, they don't have that feeling of warm up and like their, their bodies and their minds and their like emotional, psychological, sexual selves like aren't revved for that. And so there's, there's sometimes physical pain, there's often emotional distress, and sometimes it's hard to recover from that. And especially like if they're, you know, then let's say there's a break and they go, she goes to the mikvah and then like the, the cycle starts all over again. Um, and then mikvah night, she's expected to perform and like, you know, she never really learns to find her pleasure. So with a lot of couples, we have to kind of like dial it all back and just be like okay let's start from olive you know let's let's figure out what feels good for you and that becomes a really really important part of empowering this woman to find her sexuality and i want to be really clear we're not talking about predominantly like couples where the husband is is rough or abusive or cruel or demanding i mean obviously that does happen sometimes but the vast majority of couples where i see this we're talking about sweet guys nice guys good guys kind guys who are often like heartbroken when they realize how much their wives have been suffering because often a lot of the women will kind of like hide how uncomfortable they've been physically or, or psychologically because they just you know they want their husbands to have their pleasure and they're like okay this is my this is a me problem you know and I think a lot of the the angst from the men comes from that um you know being raised to think that on the hierarchy of you know um, sins. worse yeah of yeah. sins like in in the Kabbalistic uh, circles, it's like the worst sins are. You're creating demons, right? right yeah, yeah, right. All, all that, all that stuff, which yeah. obviously I think people 
really need to do their research. I, I, it's a whole different topic, but I recommend um, our my personal rabbi, my wife's personal rabbi, Rabbi Joshua Maruf, has a uh, video. It's called Questions on Judaism. I think he did a, three parts on that. And he did one episode, I think it was maybe the third one, on sexuality. And he talks about how this this idea of masturbation is very much misunderstood in tradition. So I recommend anyone listening to check that out as well. But that's definitely an issue. I think that the other issue is the pornography that you mentioned. Most men have 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 built those expectations. I've yeah. been exposed to it. And it's an actual issue that is just like, I feel like people just don't want to you know, admit knowledge, yeah, is, is a big part of it. And even you know, my wife, she's like, she's a not only a college teacher, but she's also a um, relationship coach and a matchmaker. So she, you know, you're dealing with men who are not wanting to get married because why they should they? Right? Why should they? <laughs> why should they? You have all you can swipe right, and you can you can watch pornography. You can do whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah, and there's there, that's another issue that we're you know facing. So. I want to segue into um, relationships because we talked about marital relationships. I think we should yeah. also talk about what men and women want in a relationship. Yeah. So there's like a, a trend where a lot of people, I mean, it's been going on for a few decades where people like to say men need respect and women need love. Yeah. I don't like that dichotomy. <laughs> I, I, I think that men and women both need respect and love. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I think because of the way society has been, you know, structured in terms of gender, you know, men have like either been taught to be more um, offended when they feel disrespected, <laughs> whereas, you know, women have tended to sort of like, you know, repress those feelings or, you know, like, okay, whatever, I've been disrespected. Okay, move on. What else is new? Um, <laughs> and I think that men are taught to like suck it up if they're not feeling the love that they want, whereas women are taught to whine for love. Um, but, I, but I think that we all need both. I don't feel like we should have to choose between one or the other. It's kind of like, you know, the passion versus love of SDR Perel. Like, I want both. You know, I think it's time for like a global dialectic <laughs> where like, you know, why do we have to choose between like one need or another being fulfilled? Um, that being said, like I said before, I do believe that there are such a thing as, you know, gender stereotypes that are often true a lot of the time, not 100% of the time, and gender roles that work well for a lot of people that don't have to be mandated, but can be honored, you know, if it works for both people. Um, so, you know, a lot of the a lot of the stereotypes that I was talking about before about, you know, men who have, you know, desires and wants and needs and expectations and pictures in their mind of how things should be in quotes, you know, um, uh, versus young women who might be feeling, you know, just kind of like scrambling to keep up. Um, there, there's another analogy that I give to couples a lot. I think I have a blog post on it um, that if you have, let's say you're a runner, right? You're like, you love running and you want to invite your friend to go running and your friend's never been running before. So you have, you know, strength and stamina and your experience and your friend is probably going to be out of breath within the first few minutes. So you have two choices. You could say to your friend, all right, you got to keep up with me. I go really fast. Right. And then your friend will either like collapse a few minutes in or your friend will like keep up with you, but like they'll have such a miserable time. They'll be in so much pain. They're never going to want to go running with you again. Right. So, or, or alternatively, right. You can, you can slow down to the pace of your beginner runner friend. You're not going to get the best workout, but if you're looking for a running partner, that person will have a nicer experience, might be willing to go running with you again. And then slowly, but surely we'll build up stamina and, you know, maybe close the gap. Maybe it'll be whatever you'll, you're sacrificing a little bit on the quality of your run so that you can do it with a partner. And I think that when you have that in relationships, 
um, you know, it, again, back to that, you know, the same analogy I said before is that, you know, we could ask one person to, you know, accommodate the other, but we have to look at which is the healthier accommodation to make, right? So I think like to say that the faster runner, right, the person who has the more adventurous or the more robust sex drive is going to need to slow down to accommodate the slower runner, not because that's fair to him or her, right? But I'm saying often it's to him, right? But because it's healthier for the relationship. And by giving her space to find her own pleasure, to figure out what feels good for her, to honor touch in the way that feels right for her, um, she's going to want to engage in this activity more willingly, more happily, more with more desire, with more pleasure. Humans tend to be pleasure seekers, right? We tend to avoid pain and, and seek, you know, pursue pleasure with, you know, some exceptions, but, you know, logical people are going to do more if something feels good than I want to do it again. If something hurts, I'm less likely to want to do it again. Um, you know, and so, so it's the job of the person who has the higher desire to say, how can I make this more enjoyable for you? Because then it's a win for both of us. If it's nicer for you, then you'll have a better time, which means I care about you. I want you to have a better time. And you're more likely to want to do this thing with me again, because we're both enjoying it. Right. So I want to just end because I want to end on one point, one question, because uh, we're running out of time, but um, there are so many books today with self-help and relationship you know, books, what would you recommend maybe two or three books for, for singles and married people to read in terms of improving their relationships? Like for us, we really enjoyed, yes, and... we, we really enjoyed like the five love languages and men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Oh, those no, are... there was the one that with John Gottman that we read. Yes, that was very good. Dates. Yeah. Well, Anything the... by Gottman is yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, the, the stuff that it's, it, I, I can't just choose one or two. I have a link on my website. If you want com and click on resources, there's lots of books there that I like. Um, Okay, great. I, I, Amazon has an amazing feature where you can click on like look inside and see like sample the table of contents a few like chapters just to see if you like the tone and content the Gottman's books they used they're all they've, they've always been wonderful I think that the earlier books were a little harder to get through I think some there they've gotten some good editors who made the books a little more readable and more like sort of colloquial lately so the last two books that they put out I, I um are uh, eight dates and love prescription, which I, I found like a lot easier to get through. Like I would recommend them to people who say, I don't like to read, like you could read those, you know? <laughs> it's more like the five love languages. It's really comfortable for the lay person. Um, a lot of people like Sue Johnson, Hold Me Tight. Um, she's written a bunch of books, but that's like her classic, you know, her sort of like groundbreaking one. Sue Johnson is also one of the big names. Sue Johnson, Esther Perel, John Gottman, John and Julie Gottman, um, Terrence Real, I love his stuff. Yeah. He's really wonderful. I quote him a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, one, of, one of my favorite like pieces of pithy wisdom that I learned from him, I don't know if this is his innovation, but I learned it from him is try to turn complaints into requests. So many couples get bogged down in criticism, either listen, hearing criticism or offering criticism. And it's like, then everybody feels gross, you know, but like change the, figure out, challenge yourself to change your complaint into a request. Instead of saying, I hate when you do that, or you always do this, or figure out like, what would you like them to do instead? Say, hey, listen, can I ask you a favor? Instead of doing this, could you try doing that? And people are so much more appreciative and it's so much more hopeful and helpful to hear like, it would mean a lot to me if we could do this instead of that. Um, instead like of, a, it's like the... You know, don't use you language, but use I language. I would like so that. That's a Gottman thing. Yes, yes. Yeah. Like, I statements. Don't say never. Don't say always. The Gottmans have a fantastic right. list of couple. I think they call it the couples dialogue of like you know do's and don'ts for a conversation. There's some really wonderful stuff out there, but you have to be discerning. You know, like I said, like anyone can just write a book nowadays. Yeah. Um, you know, so but but those names, you know, anything that's going to come out of those names is going to be pretty solid. Um, and also, you know, when consuming any both the man and the wife, the woman. Well, what did you say about that? 
these books are geared not just for the woman, but also for the men. Yes, that is correct. That is correct. Yes, yes. There are some books that have been published in the religious world. I Let's just say I'm still recommending the ones that I said before. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. People, unfortunately, will see that as a problem oh, because, you know, they, they'll they say that, uh, you know, it's not Jewish and so on. But the truth is scientific wisdom and knowledge of the world was very much part of Hazal, right? They studied science. Sometimes they were incorrect with their right. scientific claims. I know that's controversial. Rabbi and Antonino, stay schmoozed, right? Right, right. <laughs> but also even the Rambam says that the Mesora is in Halacha. It's not in science, you know, back then it could be rabbis, you know, if you see it in the Gemara, there's plenty of rabbis who were erred in, in areas of, you know, how to understand the world. Um, and that's okay. That's not, right. that wasn't given over at Sinai. So what we, yeah. what we advocate for here is for people to open their minds to those of those who don't necessarily read secular books, but to understand that when it comes to the world and secular knowledge, that it's the, the creator of the of the Torah, the writer of the Torah is also the creator of the world. And the yeah. wisdom of the world is very much part and parcel of, of true Torah uh, knowledge. So um, I really want to thank you for making this happen. This is really thank great so and informative. And we had a great time. Very informative. And I it was really an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much for you know inviting me on your show. And um, yeah, and I, I hope that, uh, you know, I, I hope it could be helpful to people. I do, like I said before, I have a lot of resources on my website. If you go on elishevelis.com, I have like over 150 blog posts, a lot of them on marriage oh. and relationships and um, and those resources of like books to read, you know, like links to books that I think are really, really great. And um, also like relevant to what you were just saying, I also feel like, you know, like when, when I'm reading a really wonderful mental health book, you know, psychology or self-help book, very often, like as I'm reading it in my own limited knowledge, like I'll be reading something and be like, wait, that's like Mishle, that's like Pirkevo, that's what, you know, like it, it jumps yeah. out of the, of the page, like a lot of our ancient wisdom actually totally mentions that and accesses this but like i think that the way that it's framed by people who've made a career out of you know studying and teaching this stuff is sometimes a little bit more you know digestible but anyway yeah. thank you yeah, totally and and <laughs> and you. just on that you know it reminds me of something like stoicism i'm a big i'm big into stoicism and yeah. when you're, you're, okay, vote, you're like wow this is stoicism but the average jew won't know that until they actually wow, I'm just saying I never thought about it that way. Yeah, yeah. They're they're reading Marcus Aurelius and then you're like, wow, this is this is Perkei Avot. So you know it's it, you see it a lot when you when you study both uh the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of the Torah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So thank you again and uh hopefully we'll be in touch. Sounds good. All right, have a wonderful hug. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com slash judaism pretty easy to remember thank you again and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys